0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael fregan here on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva, Israel, and national news slash radio. And welcome to another morning of political talk. Phil Goldfeder, our, my colleague, is off for today. And, uh, well, let's just say, I'm going to start because there's a lot going on this week, but, uh, Most importantly, I think, is what I think is the paradigm shift that U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley has brought to the debate in the U.N. And what I mean, as one newspaper headline said it, she positively owned President uh, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. This week, uh, Abbas comes in there and gives the historical narrative speech that the Palestinians are descended to the Canaanites 5,000 years ago. Is their land, etc. We need an honest broker. U.S. can't be. And Nikki Haley was just having none of that. And she, number one, gave the woman thing, uh, which I think, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, she gave it. She says, I will not shut up because Sayyid Barakat had told her a couple weeks ago to shut up. And she says, I will not be shut up. I will not be silenced. Um, I thought that was actually a good one because they tried to demean her. And the other thing is, you know, with Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt sitting behind her, she basically was saying, uh, we can have peace. You can come. You can talk. And we will negotiate. And we will put forward a peace plan. But we're listening and we're not going to run after you. And that's always been the thing, right? The whole world has run after the Palestinians in the quest for the elusive peace process, for the elusive prize, only to find out in the end that they're not really willing to make a deal. And that lack of bureauc- of diplomatic nicety that Ambassador Haley has brought to the UN has just to say the cold, hard truths about Abbas and his uh, coterie, And about what he has done and hasn't done is just so refreshing. And, you know, it's been over and over. I mean, we can criticize this administration on a number of fronts vis-a-vis foreign policy and the lack of, you know, Rex Tillerson's role and some major league fumbles out there. Their approach to Syria, I think, is incredibly deficient. What's going on now in Syria, another offensive from the government together with the Russians. Absolutely. I mean, you can see on video slaughtering civilians. It's tragic. But, I mean, not to be too parochial about it, ultimately, this it's a realistic approach that they've had with regard to the Sunni-Shiite divide, with regard to Iran, and also with regard to Israel. And, you know, the president and his advisors have seen just the lack of Palestinian interest in moving things forward. And, you know, when you come to the U.N., as a boss did to call for an international peace conference. Everybody knows that's not going to work. But, of course, the diplomats around because they're all invested in the peace process industry about trying to, uh, you know, just keep the momentum for the process going as opposed to any results. That is, you know, they're all going to applaud. They're all going to sit there and say, yeah, great idea. Fortunately, the United States, and I give President Trump on down... Uh, David Friedman and his people all saying there's just absolutely no reason whatsoever that we should continue the same thing with the same playbook over and over and achieve little in the way of results. And you know, it's kind of the flip side of once upon a time when James James Baker who was then Secretary of State in the Bush 41 administration, you know, said when you're to Israel, when you're serious about peace, call me. And that's kind of the Nikki Haley speech this week at the United Nations to Abbas, who undi- uh, undiplomatically and I think actually quite rudely left after a big speech criticizing the United, the United States. She, he left the room and refused to listen to Ambassador Haley. So uh, he wasn't there, but others were. And she also said that our decision with regard to Jerusalem is not going to change. And why should it? When it comes down to it, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's going to remain the capital of Israel. Nobody really thinks that Israel is going to give up all of Jerusalem. Um, I don't even think they would give up part of Jerusalem in a peace deal. But even if they were to give up part, they're certainly not going to give up the whole thing. So Israel will be the capital of Israel. I mean, Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel. So there really isn't any justification whatsoever for not acknowledging that fact. Right now, other than to essentially punish Israel uniquely more than any other nation. And have to give tremendous credit to this administration for not just thinking that for not just formulating that policy but actually saying it on the world stage and actually injecting some appropriate thinking to the United Nations which has long been a adversarial still is an adversarial body to uh to Israel certainly i think somewhat to the jewish people as well and uh really a note of gratitude and thanks for that being said, and, you know, some people might say, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's just words, these things, the United Nations, they don't matter. Well, in the end, to the extent that they harm us when they're said against Israel, they do matter. And to the extent that they're said in favor of us, they do matter. Uh, you know, recognition of Jerusalem as the capital writes a historic wrong. We've said this before. It writes historic wrong. There's no other country on this planet that does not get to choose their capital aside from Israel. And the bottom line is Israel does guarantee freedom of religion. They do guarantee access to the holy sites. All the arguments that you want to make that Jerusalem should not be the capital that Abbas came to there to do, they're just false arguments. And it's just totally... And the old playbook of... The Palestinians have the historic right to the land more and denying the Jewish right. Well, he did. He did acknowledge, actually, that the Jews have some religious rights to the land. That was a new one. But, you know, leaving that aside, it also, as the slaughter is going on in Syria, as just absolute humanitarian crisis and nightmare going on in Syria, this is what the Security Council chooses to debate once again and to hear this incendiary speech from Mahmoud Hamas. So kudos to Nikki Haley. Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt sitting behind her uh, as very surprising that Jared Kushner was there in the hole, certainly noted, I think very notable, and it signals a commitment to try and get a deal done, but getting a deal done in a realistic way, in a way that is going to benefit all sides. So we will see, we will see what happens. But I have to say, uh, I, I, I thank the administration for having done that. Now, having said that, and segue into the number, uh, number two item I wanted to discuss was particularly Jared Kushner's security clearance, and not just his security clearance, but the security clearance of many people who are in temporary security clearances in the White House. Now, look, clearly the president is allowed to declassify and allow, give security clearances to whoever he wants, but he isn't doing that. I mean, what they're doing is dragging out a process where it's temporary, and if somebody has been investigated for a year... And there's apparently like 40 people under this category. There could be more. And they still can't get a security clearance. I think at a time that they are, I'm not saying they're a threat, but they just haven't been cleared. And anybody's had a background check, they know that they're asking, they ask not questions just of you, they ask questions of all your friends and your associates. And they look through your business records and see what you're associated with. And there's real concerns with people who have foreign. Entanglements, uh, foreign business deals, foreigners. There is a always concern that U.S. secrets fall into the hands of the wrong person, and that's a very legitimate concern. That's a very, very legitimate concern. Uh, we look, we had that with, and even if they're friendly countries, and you know, look, we we know that very well with the Pollard case. That everybody, you know, we made the case that Jonathan Pollard he passed secrets to a friend. Well, that doesn't really matter when it comes down to espionage. I mean, it matters. In the severity, I guess, of the impact, but in the end, it's a very serious matter. The national security establishment, rightly so, keeps America's secrets, tries to keep them very safe, and there's a process here. And I think the issue that has the Porter episode and why it's been handled so poorly has shown is that there just lacks process in the White House. They just, well, you okay? Somebody could get it security clearance okay we'll just keep them going well that's not how it's supposed to work if you're working at the highest levels of the government you're sitting there you're have access to the deepest darkest i'll just say darkest you know, for lack of a better word deepest darkest secrets that this country has and you get that all in your head and somehow you could be compromised or blackmailed that's that's a really bad precarious situation that we do not want people at high levels of government to be in and you might want to say, well, you know, guys like Jared Kushner, they can't be blackmailed. Well, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. I mean, nobody really knows what's somebody, all their life story, all the details of it, all the things they've been involved in. And who knows um, what could happen? Who knows what kind of... And, you know, that's a way in which the country could be compromised. And I'm not picking on him in particular. I'm picking on the whole process. If there are 40 people in the White House who are, lack security clearance They should not be seeing the closest intelligence and the intelligence they have to. If you can't get a security clearance, you know, it's like kind of if you can't pass, you know, the SEAL training, should you still be a Navy SEAL? If you can't be an Army, if you can't pass the Ranger training, should you still be an Army Ranger? Should we still allow you to keep trying? Should we still allow you to stay in the program as long as you can to pass it? I mean, there is a theory that people can keep trying, but. You know, I don't know, I and mean, then that's that's where the real rub comes down to. You know, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, that's yeah. You know, we don't really understand if the president wants these people to see the secrets, then they should. If they wanted to see the intel, then they should. And uh, I just don't buy into that. I think there has to be rules for everybody, and the rules should apply across the board. Bob Mueller once again has uh, thrown out down the gauntlet, uh, indicting a lawyer. For Paul Manafort, and there's room that Rick uh, rumor that Rick Gates will uh, flip, and he is just moving forward. I think incredible. I mean, if you read these indictments, I mean, it's quite comprehensive and incredible how much he has thrown in there, and how much is that. Now the president says, "Well, no cool, you know, it vindicates me." Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, in a sense, if all the vindication you're looking for is to say I didn't do it and it doesn't name me, yes, but the bottom the problem is it doesn't vindicate you as commander in chief here. Because we have a foreign adversary that looked to compromise the United States, that looked and clearly very in a very detailed plan has looked to compromise the United States, and right now the United States is doing very little about it, and to me, that's a just a, a very uh, well it's just a, a very shocking situation that. We can't get the white house on board essentially with punishing russia for what they've done and uh there's no question that they've done it i mean i think everybody across the board and even the president now finally acknowledges that russia did it It probably wasn't the 400 pound kid sitting in his in his underwear on uh on the bed in the basement however he characterized that but this is something that they really need to get a handle on and it needs to come from the top the leadership here i mean general master goes to the Munich conference, he's in front of the Russians, and he says outright what needed to be said, that the Russians meddled in the U.S. election, they need to stop. And of course, you know, the Russians deny that. And it's kind of unclear whether the president, uh, you know, which side the president is on in this debate. Sometimes you got to get a little clearer. I understand you, you feel you want to head off the investigation, and the, but it's not always about you, it's about the country when it comes down to it. And, that brings uh, the big issue of the week, which is essentially guns and what has transpired in Florida with the mass shooting of another school, and, and as we said last week, I, I just the school thing it just it's so shocking and unbelievable that someone would people would continue crazy people would continue to shoot up schools and continue to attack children in schools. It's the words really can't describe the the horror and the pain and the suffering that gone now. Now once again we get into the gun debate of whether people should have guns, whether they should now. I have to say, a common sense. You know there is an element of common sense. Yes, there is a Second Amendment, and people say, well, we can't infringe upon it, and everything with that. You know, I, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. We talked last week about this. I mean, I think not for gun control. I think that that is a mistake over and over. I think this, the country is very different. We can't legislate from the federal government an absolute ban nationally on guns. I mean, you don't have to go too far outside of New York City to come to very rural areas um, where, you know, there is a preponderance of, of gun ownership, even amongst Democrats. It's not necessarily a Democrat-Republican divide. Remember, the Democrats couldn't pass gun control. They couldn't pass assault weapons. Uh, Background. All these things with when in, in control of three, all three houses. Okay, all three branches. Uh, sorry, the two, the Congress and the presidency. Back in the Obama years, right in the beginning of the Obama years, they couldn't do it. Uh, it's not really a Democrat Republican issue. It's an urban, rural, or urban suburban rural divide. And you know, one thing we have to acknowledge, and this is the way our system is set up. It's this. It's the case that rural. Areas and in rural interests, or exurban interests, uh, or smaller states are protected under our Constitution. And what do I mean by this? Well, it's not just in the Senate. And the Senate is pretty obvious because the smallest states get, you know, like Wyoming, get two senators. And the biggest states, like California, Florida, Texas, New York, they also get two senators. It's an equal voice. And you might. Say, and rightly so, that your voice living in New York or New Jersey or wherever you are, and most of our audience probably lives in metropolitan areas, is greatly diminished by this because it should be one person, one vote. But that's not the way it works in the US Senate. And people have the ability, uh, people, smaller states have a greater, much greater voice in what happens. And these smaller states tend to be more rural. And they tend, when I say smaller, it's in terms of population. They tend to be more rural, and gun ownership is important. I mean, look, I, I think there's a lot of uh, logic to if you live in Alaska uh, and you're hundreds of miles from the closest police uh, person, and you hunt for uh, survival and and the like, that you should need to have weapons. I mean, it just it just makes sense. Take the idea of nationally taking them away. Now, do people need an AR-15? Certainly not. But back to the rural. Urban issue. The other issue we have, of course, is with regard to gerrymandering. That's a big issue. We'll probably get to that in the coming weeks. Big uh, court ruling that allows that redrew uh, Pennsylvania's map, which now could put a number of uh, seats in play. Maybe uh, you know Democrats might pick up five seats now in Pennsylvania through the map being redrawn. But another you know way in which. Core uh, drawing the lines, even for the House, favors rural interests. Is that there is a when you draw these lines, you try and keep municipalities intact. So and you try and keep areas intact to the extent possible. So those towns, villages, cities, and you kind. Now the more you pack certain voters, if you have into cities uh, and to certain smaller municipalities the more they are going to you're going to have lopsided districts to one side and then you might have larger districts where you're going to keep counties and towns intact and those in many cases are going to tend to be rural areas because there's just that by essence there's just more land out there and you might have some variance with regard to population in those areas and that allows in many cases in many states and we even have this in New York uh that that the state senate districts are drawn uh, respecting town boundaries and county boundaries, and many cases they end up uh, larger, certainly larger in geography. Uh, some variance of the regard to population, and all the New York City, the Democrats in New York City on this in the state senate are all packed pretty much into New York City because that's uh, how. Uh, now, you might want to say, well, you know, New York, it doesn't make sense. The, the gerrymandering, it should be, um, you know, it's three it's three to two in registration. And there's definitely um, you know, far more Democrats than there are Republicans. And it should be lopsided. And, of course, you know, maybe the, these districts should be drawn to somehow get to, you know, 40, you know, 60-40 Republican Democrat. But, you know, remember, this New York State Assembly is not, is not. 60 40 um for um for democrats it's actually like more like 70 percent for democrats you know every party in there is going to draw the lines to their best advantage not just republicans take advantage of this democrats take advantage of this too and in many cases the way the the lines are drawn it's going to favor rural interests that's one thing that makes the gun debate so challenging uh yesterday the president met with the families of uh, surviving families of uh, Parkland, um, took some hits. I mean, one thing I, I think, and I'm, I'm glad, look, that he is taking these notes in there, but they got a picture of his notes, and it shows a little bit of an empathy gap. I got I just got to be honest here, not to attack him. He, he, he sat there. He took it. Obviously, gun's an issue that he's not going to see eye to eye on a lot of the people there, and he sat there and, and took some criticism. Which is not something he usually does, but I have to say, sitting there and saying I have to have a note that says that I hear you, that I'm listening. Um, that's the kind of thing that most people should know on their own. Well, let's just take that aside that you need to have that talking point in there. But you know, we'll have to we'll have to go ahead and, and leave that for for a second. I don't want to you know criticize that Marco Rubio really took it on the head when he sat with uh, did a CNN town hall. Uh, Wasn't just town hall; a massive group of people, and only Republicans show up all together with an NRA spokesman. Uh, I think he acquitted himself quite well. No question, as I said, the AR-15 does not belong in regular people's hands. It's just There's just no reason for a military-type weapon. I'll put it that way. Um, one more or two more things as we go um, and as we wrap up for this week is uh, another loss this week in a local election in not for Republicans. And I know, you know, there are a lot of people out there say, well, no problem the midterms. It's going to be fine. Trump's, you know, whatever. We'll we'll carry it in the end because he surprised everybody in uh, in 2016. So 2018 is going to be a similar type of thing. Well, a number of special elections, not in the federal level, but at the local level, have kind of shown that Republicans have a problem. And we're not talking about like New York. We're not talking about Connecticut. We're talking about Kentucky, uh, where a Kentucky State House seat, Linda Belcher, a former teacher, won sixty eight thirty two. That's sixty eight thirty two. That's by thirty six points. This was a district that President Trump carried by fifty points. Now she ran against a flawed op- opponent, apparently. But thirty-seven legislative seats that Democrats have flipped since Trump took office. Twenty came in districts carried by Trump. So we've only looked at, you know, the Trump districts in the House where, uh, where Clinton won, held by Republicans, and you know, twenty-something districts, and that could contribute to the twenty-five that the Democrats need to take the House. But apparently, there is also the issue here of districts that Trump carried that we're having an issue with. I mean, that Republicans are struggling to win elections. And this happened last week in a Florida state uh, state election. It happened in Wisconsin for, for Wisconsin state Senate seat. And um, Republicans need to think about a couple things. Number one, Democrats are energized. Number two is the president might not be as popular even in districts that he carried, even in in districts that he carried in 2018. And this is, you know, they have to revamp, they have to get their political operation going. You know, we need to go, we will go ahead and, you know, look closely next week, I'm sorry, next week is part the week after that. Uh, we will be looking very closely at the upcoming Pennsylvania special election for a House seat. That's a district that the president carried by 20 points. And the uh, Democrat Connor Lamb running against Republican Rick Sacone and the NRCC and Republicans are pouring lots of money into this race in order to make sure that they don't lose it. The interesting thing, of course, is that this district is going to be totally redrawn under the new maps that we just mentioned that... Because the Supreme Court, the I'm sorry, the, the Pennsylvania courts have invalidated the maps that were drawn uh, a couple of years ago for the House seats, and there is going to be a redrawing of this district. So it won't even exist in its current form in 2000 uh, in the regular election. I mean November of 2018, uh, but just for this special election coming up and uh one more thing as i close out and uh, this is just a uh observation with regard to the um well gq is out with its top 50 washingtonians and i think it's a fascinating list i would definitely check it out because number one is hope hicks um and i think that the amazing thing what we've seen about the rob porter scandal is that hope hicks is untouchable in this white house uh she is basically just the I don't know, the favorite of the president and uh, nothing is going to touch her, nothing is going to damage her. There's been a tremendous effort to protect her even though she was apparently involved in the res- in the botched response with regard to Rob Porter and there's no question that the uh, response was, was totally botched as far as uh, this is concerned and has led to weeks of headaches for the White House. Uh, but actually I want to switch gears just to the Jewish politics side. Uh, Shmuley Boteach, Look, like him or or hate him or love him or hate him, I should say. That's the flip side. Um, and I think he he does uh, look, he, you know, he does as a, promotes himself, America's rabbi, whatever you want to say. Uh, but his this systematic campaign on his part of attacking every Jewish leader who went to Qatar, um, it's troubling. And this week he went after my friend uh, Marty Oliner uh, of who is the head of the RZA and. You know, for and just calling all these people who came who went to Qatar as sellouts, he went after Alan Dershowitz and more Klein, and just it's like I don't know whether to believe this this story that he was invited and he was not invited to Qatar and he wanted to go and he wanted to be paid $100,000 for going. Um, whether it's true or not, it, it does unfortunately for, for Rabbi Shmuel, it doesn't sound out of character because he does actually take fees for a lot of the things that he does, Uh, he has some great points with regard to the Qataris and their bad actions and their support for Hamas, as well as their Al Jazeera, which has been vile with regard to anti-Semitism. But the extent to which he is going after people who have literally given years in service of the Jewish people uh, out there trying to help the Jewish people on a consistent basis, it's, it's really you know, surprising the vitriol to which he has done this. And, you know, Alan Dershowitz pushed back very heavily on him, refused to debate him. I mean, basically, it's just, but, you know, this kind of continues. And sometimes you get the feeling of uh, he protesteth too much. I don't know how that goes. So anyway, that's it for this week here on Spin Class. Here on the Malcolm Siegel Network, stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.